This episode of the Orthodox Conundrum deals with the Chaim Walder and Yehuda Meshi Zahav cases and the topics of sexual abuse of children and suicide. Please be aware that our discussion may be disturbing or triggering to some listeners. Most of the time, uh, victims, when they reach out to us, usually most of them are looking for some sort of therapeutic support first. They're looking either for a referral for therapy or they're looking for uh, a support group or something of that nature. And we found that there was a tremendous amount of, uh, of victims reaching out, wanting to go straight to the police. There was like no, no pass and go, no collecting $200. It was just straight to the police. And a number of victims actually told me that it was because they realized after he committed suicide that, you know, we, we don't always get tomorrow when it comes to, you know, what if my abuser isn't here tomorrow and I don't have the option. And this has always kind of been in my mind that I can do this one day, but I actually want to do this and I want to do it now. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On November 12, 2021, Haaretz first reported that several women alleged that popular author Chaim Walder had sexually assaulted them for years, in some cases starting when they were children. Soon after, many more people came forward with similar accusations. And on December 27th, Walder was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound lying next to his son's grave. This all took place approximately a year ago. Earlier that same year, in March, police opened an investigation regarding allegations of sexual misconduct on the part of Zaka founder Yehuda Meshi Zahav. In April of last year, Meshi Zahav tried to kill himself and fell into a coma as a result, dying about five months ago. Before these two cases emerged, there seems to have been a culture of denial in many segments of the Orthodox world. For numerous reasons, there was often reluctance to report sexual abuse to the police. Religious media outlets often pretended that it simply didn't exist, and those who did report sexual abuse would sometimes be ostracized by their communities. Many people wondered if these two high-profile cases would spur serious changes regarding sexual abuse in the Orthodox world. Now that some time has passed, I thought it would be worthwhile to hear whether attitudes have moved forward in a helpful direction. In order to learn more, I spoke to Shana Aronson, the executive director of Magain. Shana Aronson holds a BS in psychology and certification in educational guidance counseling, training in abuse prevention with at-risk children and youth, and IFS therapy. Shana's past work experience includes mentoring at-risk youth through several educational programs. Shana then served as the assistant director of Sophia, a residential therapeutic home for adolescent girls at risk. She later worked as the social services coordinator for Magain Child Protective Services, where she supported families whose children had been physically and sexually abused before joining Jewish Community Watch as a case manager, and finally, as the executive director of Magain. Outside of her work running Magain, Shana's advocacy roles include volunteering as a coach to religious brides who are survivors of interpersonal trauma and birth assistant to women with histories of sexual and physical abuse. Shana Aronson, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start off talking specifically about Chaim Walder before we expand the conversation further. Can you, Shana, briefly recount the basic facts of the case for those who aren't aware? Sure. So uh, Chaim Walder was a very popular, that's really putting it mildly, um, author of 
children's books. The truth is not only children's books, some books for adults as well, but he was primarily known for his work uh, creating content for children, um, starting with the uh, Kids Speak series, which was uh, books where he would kind of compile, based on a radio show that he had, um, compile stories that children shared with him. Um, just to kind of every day and, you know, unique experiences that these children had had that other children could, the idea being, could learn from and and uh, were inspirational. And he, he really was a, more than just very popular, he was a figure and a personality that was pretty much present in every, certainly Haredi, Dati as well, home. He was unique in that his work kind of made its way into uh, into the homes of of uh, in communities kind of across the Jewish observant world, um, which again is very unique. There, I don't think there are too many people like that. Right. Um, and and I say all this to to really kind of paint a picture and kind of illustrate how how devastating this was for the community. This 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 had um, ripple effects and um, impacted. I mean, really, like across the the Jewish world, it was incredibly horrifying, shocking, terrifying for parents, people everywhere. About a year ago, a little more than a year ago, the story broke um, in uh, first in Haaretz uh, magazine uh, newspaper. I'm sorry um, that uh, at, I believe initially it was three women who had spoken to the journalist, three or four, um, in that first article. Um, about severe sexual abuse and rape that they had experienced um, at the hands of Walder. I can say for those of us at McGain, this was not a total surprise. We were aware of some of these allegations previously. We had been in contact um, with someone who had been abused as an older woman. We were not aware of the allegations involving children up until that point. We were aware of the allegations involving women. Unfortunately, up until that point, there had not been anyone that we had found um, who was um, I don't want to say willing because it was really more able, felt that they were able to handle um, the process of what it would take to go up against him, whether that meant reporting to the police or whether that meant, you know, anything else. But thank God, finally, um, a number of women had spoken to the journalists at Haaretz and the story was released. Obviously, it created immediately tremendous uh, shockwaves and horror. There were many, many, many people, as always, who said this absolutely. There was no way that this could be true. And then little by little, it became more and more clear that it that it was true. There was a synopsis of some recordings released, and I don't think the recordings actually ever made it public that I can recall. Um, and then shortly after, the based in of Revelio um, released a statement that they had- Rashbul Eliyahu and Tzfat, yes, right? Eliyahu and Tzfat, um, that they had interviewed or spoken to 22 women um, and women who had previously been abused as girls by Walder. Um, and at that point, it just became it became more and more clear that this was obviously very real. The communal response was very mixed. Initially, like I said, there was a tremendous amount of shock. Many, many people didn't believe it. Even as time went on and people did believe it, there were mixed responses in terms of how do we, how should we be responding? What should we be saying? Um, and I will say, and I think we have to give space for the fact that this was compounded by the fact that this was somebody who... This was a figure that our children all knew about well. He was a figure that we had, you know, well, those of us that were not aware of the allegations had let into our homes. And that's kind of a, a sacred thing. And that was just horrifying for, for parents to even think about, consider. So the response, um, there was a lot of, 
a tremendous amount of anger, a tremendous amount of horror, a tremendous amount of horror, shock and disgust. Um, the response by uh, Rabunim, you know, initially there wasn't any response, which is this isn't the kind of thing that that Rabunim usually really want to respond to. It's kind of this is horrible. No one really wants to to talk about it. It was mm-hmm. out. And then once the response did kind of the truth is the the, the response really blew up um, after the point where um, a couple few weeks after the allegations had come out, he committed suicide in a very, very dramatic and horrifying, not that there's any non-dramatic and horrifying, but particularly uh, shocking and horrific uh, way. He had shot himself um, at his son's grave. His son had died a few years previously of an illness. And of course, this was, I mean, just compounded the horror on so many different levels, obviously for the victims who wanted to have the chance to confront him. This was just another just another example of another way that he was taking that away from them. Um, and then also the feeling like he, he in this final act, managed to flip the narrative um, where people were feeling sorry for him, um, which again was, was also so much more painful for the victims. Um, Shana, didn't he write a note also saying that he was taking everybody yes. who's claiming things against him to Dean Torah and Shemaim or something yes. like that? Yes, he did. That's part of flipping the narrative, like of course. Yes, part of flipping the narrative, absolutely. Final, Getting the last word. Absolutely. Um, and it was, and the whole thing was really, I mean, completely, completely horrific. And there were some Rabbanim who came out at that point and said that um, Lashon Hara killed him. I think that the, and I, and I can really only say, and it, and it's pretty clear to me, even as somebody who, who stands so strongly on one side of this issue, very, very strongly on one side of this issue, um, that a lot of this was just complete shock. We don't like to think of our leaders as being human, but they are. Um, and in the face of something so unbelievably, like mind-bogglingly horrific, and what was right in front of them in that moment was this man shooting himself on his son's grave. I mean, I, that you can't really, there's no way to overstate the the horrific, you know, tragic and just, just sick and dramatic, you know, right. um, nature of that act and the response was just sort of like this instantaneous like how could this have happened like that became the focus was this horrific dramatic suicide um and and that response was deeply problematic for a number of reasons number one obviously um the message that it sent to victims which i'll get back to in a moment um and that i mean the message was loud and clear and horrible also the uh the narrative around suicide of sort of presenting it as a he had no other choice but to kill himself, which is just an incredibly dangerous, um, just an incredibly dangerous message for us to be telling young people, because that that isn't, you know, suicide should never be the option. Um, mm-hmm. There should there are always other options and there are always other ways that he there are things he could have done. Um, I'm not saying that he would have ever gotten back to his previous that clearly was not going to happen. What he had done was horrific and he needed to leave his positions, all of them, but this was not his only option. And, and giving that message to young people, to, to our children, that suicide is the only option after, you know, you've crossed the, that, that's not, that's an incredibly toxic and dangerous message. And it was very difficult for many, many people um, and so many different levels, the, the layers of this pain and trauma were, I mean, just so deep. Um, and then a few days after this, after his funeral, which was a very 
also problematic for many, many reasons. It was, you know, thousands of people attended um, the funeral. Um, some of the Hispadim directly uh, referenced the allegations and said that these allegations had had killed him. Implying um, they're false, meaning yes. not guilt killed well, him. The allegations, the Lush and Hari killed him. It, the truth of the matter is that's that's it's an interesting <laughs> distinction that I'm not sure really was was always there. Um, there were some people, many people, who didn't deny that he had done those things, but said that still the Lushenhar killed him. You know, when we dissect that, what does that mean? They're saying it's true, but it shouldn't have been talked about, or are they saying it's true, but it should have been handled differently? What exactly are they saying? I'm not sure, but the point remains that that narrative of somebody else killed him, which is not the case. He killed himself. He made a choice. It sounds to me a bit like an attempt, consciously or otherwise, to change the narrative to something which fits the narrative, saying, yeah, that happened, but the real problem is this other thing in our community. Yeah, 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 that did happen, but our actual problem is Lush and Hara. Right. And, and, and the idea that like every time something like this comes up, obviously not on this level, but every time a case like this comes up and there's this discussion around, you know, people start talking about Lush and Hara, Lush and Hara is a problem. Lush and Hara is a terrible sin. There's plenty of room to talk about Lush and Hara, not in the context of abuse. Lushenhara, the reality is that Lushenhara has for years constantly and 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 systematically been used as a way to silence victims. So bringing up Lushenhara in the context of abuse allegations is under any circuit, it's it's just outrageously inappropriate and should not be happening. So three days later, um, there was again tremendous, tremendous another layer of shock and horror when um when Shifra Horowitz was found, a young woman who was a victim of Walters, um, and following the funeral, which I will also add was widely broadcasted, everybody saw it, it was all over everywhere. Um, and after seeing the tremendous, um, you know, party almost that they made in his honor and his memory could not take that, that pain and living with that reality of her, the reality of her reality being so completely ignored um, and she committed suicide. And that um, created, I can say personally, that was a very, very difficult night. Um, I have dealt with a lot of very difficult things in 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 my in our work. Um, that was it was a it was a dark night. It was very much a feeling. There was, I think, a feeling for a lot of people, victims and people who work with victims, like a feeling of going back so many steps backward and why are like, why are, why are we even bothering? Are we ever even going to be able to make a difference and nothing we do is going to really be able to reach all of the people in pain that we need to be able to reach. Um, and personally, that was a very, very difficult time after, after that, um, just seeing that, that tragedy unfold in real time. And, and we know there are so many tragedies like that, but we don't always see them. They're not out there for the public view in a way that everybody knows about. This was was truly um, horrific to to watch and hear and and see unfold. So that is the background of okay. uh, the Walder case. Yes. All right. Thank you for presenting that. One of the first things I want to ask you, Shana, is you mentioned that initial almost knee jerk reaction of some of the religious leadership saying that he died by Lushenhara. Unless I misunderstood, it sounded almost like you were, quote unquote, defending them, meaning it was just an initial sense of shock rather than a thought out response. And perhaps I misunderstood you. 
did they eventually come out and change their tune or did that remain their narrative that he died by Lush and Hara? Or have they changed their minds and said, okay, we misspoke initially, this is Heimwalder's own fault, etc.? So I do think that it was a knee-jerk response, but I'm not saying that as a defense because it's not okay to make knee-jerk responses on an issue that is so um, that is so fraught and when there's so much at stake. So the fact that it's a knee-jerk reaction doesn't make it really much better than if it had been yeah. a thought-out reaction. Um, right. Some did, I wouldn't say retract, that would be too strong of a word, but put out further letters of clarification that made it more clear that no abuse does need to be, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be reported. It needs to be, you know, victims should go to therapy, need to get whatever kind of help they, um, they can, which uh, no, there was no actual letter of that was a mistake. And this is what I actually, you know, believe and I'm saying, unfortunately there was nothing like that. There were some, semi there, there were clarifications although not as as uh direct as i would have liked and not from everyone some unfortunately took the track of okay well let's just move on and hopefully that will this will just be sort of a dark chapter that we don't have to talk about again okay Sean, i have another question to ask you about that one of the things that you said this is almost a side point, but I'm kind of curious about how you are able to handle something in your situation as director of Magain. You said that to people in your position, these allegations weren't exactly a shock. You'd have been hearing about them for a while, even though women were not able to come forward. So there's nothing you could do about them. Mm-hmm. So what does somebody do, someone like you, who hears these allegations, does not have an official police report as far as I know, but has strong reason to believe they're true, presumably because there are multiple allegations coming from different places, so what do you do in a case like that when people mention the name Chaim Walder? Do you have to keep your mouth shut and say, I, I can't say a word? Or do you have to help people protect themselves? It's a sticky situation, I'm sure. It's an incredibly sticky situation. Um, I would say that every situation is different. I don't think there's there can't be a hard and fast rule because every victim is different, every victim's experience is different, and every situation is different. Um, I can only say that we will do whatever we can to get it out. In this situation, one of the allegations that had come to us was completely anonymous. I mean, to the point that a man called from a block number, wouldn't tell us his name, and said his wife was raped by Kyan Walder. To this day, we don't know who that victim was. Um, we don't know if she ever spoke to the journalist. We had no way to reach her afterwards because they called from a block number. They did call twice. They followed up a few weeks later, um, but again, would not tell us a single piece of identifying information. So there's absolutely nothing for us to do with that other than the fact that we, you know, um, try to live with it because we strongly believe that it was true based on other information that we already knew, but there was like nothing. And and we really did try. We offered to bring her to various different people, professionals, rabbis, that, to, to encourage her to be able to come forward. It was not happening. And there was another woman that we were in contact with at an earlier time, some of our staff, um, but also she had chosen at that point, she was not ready. Um, and she decided to take a different track, um, which is obviously something that we, we not happy about, but we always respect when a victim decides to, uh, to do something like that, um, because they really, they have to take care of themselves and that has to come first. Um, in terms of what we can do, I mean, we spoke to various people within the community. It was very, very clear that people knew this wasn't a very welcome secret on the inner 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 parts in terms of you know the people he was involved with in the area and a lot of uh leadership in Bnei Brak, they knew they were aware 
Um, but again, and I don't know if the reason they didn't do anything was because the position we were in, they didn't have anything firsthand or anything direct or anything that was actionable or because they were trying to cover it up. That obviously I don't know and we'll probably never know. Um, I'm assuming it's a mix. There's some some of each. Not the first it's not group. a monolithic leadership. Different people do sure, different things absolutely. probably for different reasons. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, then let's talk a little bit about the continuing ramifications of the case. Because when you tell the story, the victim's suicide is sort of the terrible conclusion to that particular chapter. And in a certain way, that was the last that I heard about it in any active way. So now it's been 11 months since that happened and 12 months or a little bit more since the original allegations came out. So what has happened in the year since then regarding specifically Chaim Walder, and then perhaps we can expand it to talk about what has happened in the religious world in general regarding claims of abuse and preventing abuse. Has there been progress in either of those areas? Have there been any positive ramifications in a sense that people are taking it more seriously than they would have before, or has that not happened? So I, I think the ramific- I think there have been a lot of ramifications. I think that, first of all, I, I do want to say that I don't agree, you know, in the wake of, of the Walder case, a lot of people... A lot of journalists, you know, spoke to me and, and many people were referring to this as kind of a the watershed moment. Um, and I don't believe in watershed moments when it comes to abuse in in the Orthodox community or maybe in any community. Um, I think that all, all, all of these watershed moments are really um, actually the culmination of many, many, many small moments that lead up to them. These these cases don't get broken in a vacuum. Um, every single victim that tells their story, whether publicly or in a more private forum, but tells it, you know, to somebody else creates a ripple effect and, and and a shift in dynamic, which ends up culminating in these kinds of, in, in this kind of situation, people feeling safe enough to be able to take that risk. Um, so I don't think that it was like, okay, now this happened and now there's such a huge, you know, shift. What we did see, I can say at McGinn, is that certainly the number of cases we were dealing with went up. Um, that's, that is frequently the case after there's any kind of public, you know, public case that's broken. Um, in this case, the numbers never really went back down again. Um, additionally, something that was interesting was that most of the time, uh, victims, when they reach out to us, usually most of them are looking for some sort of therapeutic support first. They're looking either for a referral for therapy or they're looking for uh, a support group or something of that nature. And we found that there was a tremendous amount of, uh, of victims reaching out, wanting to go straight to the police. There was like no no pass and go, no collecting $200. It was just straight to the police. And a number of victims actually told me that it was because they realized after he committed suicide that, you know, we, we don't always get tomorrow when it comes to, you know, what if my abuser isn't here tomorrow and I don't have the option. And this has always kind of been in my mind that I can do this one day, but I actually want to do this and I want to do it now. And that was interesting because we don't usually have such a, we didn't, up until that point, usually that was not why victims were reaching out to us, at least initially. Usually it was like a process that would start with something, you know, more therapeutic and supportive, and then it would evolve into, okay, now I am ready to seek justice. Now I am ready to protect my community. Now I'm ready for that next step. And then all of a sudden we were sort of seeing the shift where many, many victims, not all, but many were saying, no, no, I just, I want to report this. I want to take him to court. I want to take, I want to report to the police. I want to go to Beatty and I want to just, just right away. That was a shift, and I think it's a shift that we're still seeing to some degree. We still have more victims than we previously did before. Not, I mean, the numbers have sort of evened out a little bit more since then, in, in the years since then, um, but we still have a higher number of victims who are just reaching out, want to go straight to report than we used to. 
Um, that is one big change. Another big change has been there's definitely it certainly did raise awareness among the really insular communities that this happens by us and not just that it happens, but it's possible for it to go on for a very, very long time without anyone knowing. So that I think there was a shift for many, many people. We speak to people who are like, yeah, I didn't, I really didn't think, you know, I would have, I, I always thought until then that if there was something like this going on, it would have been shut down at some point, you know, it wouldn't have gone on for years and years, decades and decades. Um, so that I think was a, there was a lot of learning that went on for people, a lot of, uh, that was kind of an educational message, um, an unfortunate one, but important. And then aside from that, I think there was a, there was a breakdown on a communal level in the Haredi community. And that was something that was very difficult and very painful and very interesting for me to experience. I don't think I'd ever had before situations where in, in the wake of the case where I, I was getting phone calls from, I mean, either the McGinn hotline or calling me personally um, from people, I, I remember several phone calls from Haredi Avrechim, guys in Kolo, not victims from what they said. They're just guys who were so horrified and shocked and devastated by the response by the Rabbanim that it was it, it was traumatic. It was an actual trauma of like a trauma of, of, of like a crisis of faith. And um, and I was in this very, very strange position of needing to like give chizok to these men, most of them actually, um, who were having this complete, like these are people who are been living in Kiryat Sefer or Hellstone or Bedebrock for, you know, learning in coal for the last 15 years. And now they're like, I don't even know what I'm doing here anymore. I don't know. I, I don't understand what this community is. How could they have not cared enough about my children, about all of our children? Um, and there was a tremendous like shaking of, faith in the Rabbanim. And to be honest, you know, Magain is a very non-political organization. We do not get involved in any politics whatsoever. The only time we will ever even touch politics is if there is a specific politician who does something that is harmful or good for victims, and then in which case we will comment it or get involved. But, but that's that, not about politics. That's right. about the person. Yes, exactly. But I truly think, actually, that this was something, you know, I, I was hearing all these political pundits talking about the the shock that so many people had where Gimel received so many, you know, so few seats compared to what people were expecting. Um, and I actually believe that, that that there is something related. I think that we're seeing uh, there was a breakdown in in faith in community leadership um, and people were no longer willing to just to vote where. And I, I don't think that that was because of Heinem Walder, but just from my little, little corner of the world in what we're dealing with. I saw that that breakdown of people needing to re-examine and like I said, maybe come hopefully come back to the community and to their leadership in a more thought out way, in a, in a way of appreciating these people are humans. They are not infallible. We do not have Ruch HaKodesh anymore. Um, and the idea that 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 we do, <laughs> the idea that there are you know leaders who do is actually not really based in Judaism. It's quite, it's the antithesis of what Judaism really believes. Um, but having to come back to it in, in just a more thought out way that our, you know, my Rav is a person and he also is is a human who has feelings and does not know everything. He has his wisdom and it and it and and his Torah, and I have to you know come to that, but also understand that there might be crises that he is not equipped to deal with. Um, and that doesn't need to mean that I have no place in this community. It just means I need to re-figure out where that is. We really saw that just from our little, you know, just from where where we are. 
And I'm going to come back to rabbinic leadership in a moment. And just for listeners who don't know, Gimel is the United Torah Jewry Party. I want to quickly read something else. You talked about how this isn't a watershed moment because you don't believe there's a watershed moment. There was a BBC article online published about two months ago by Yolanda Nell entitled, Is This an Ultra-Orthodox Me Too Moment? And she was specifically not talking about Chaim Walder so much as the death of Yehuda Meshi Zahav, the founder of Zaka, who after allegations came up however long ago, attempted to kill himself, was in a coma for a long time, and then died six months ago or so in June. So in this article, I want to read something that Rabbi Aharon Boimel is quoted as saying. I don't know who he is. He's someone who's in the article. Rabbi Aharon Boimel, who considered himself a friend of both Zahav and Walder, insists things are changing. He says rabbinical leaders did not know about abuse by the two men, but admits that a culture of shame and secrecy has been, quote, a big problem. Once we used to brush this stuff under the carpet— Today, there is no such thing. If someone abuses a young boy or girl, immediately we call the police, he says. Today, I know another story like that of Chaim Walder and Yehuda Meshi Zahav. Big names, important people. They've stopped the abuse and gone to get treatment thanks to the story, he says. Such comments have raised concern among victims who believe some abusers are still being offered treatment rather than reporting directly to the police. So I want to ask you, does this ring true or does it ring or sound like apologetics to you? Do you think that this particular person, again, whom I do not know, is correct in saying things have drastically changed in terms of reporting things to the police and uh, nowadays it does not get swept under the carpet the same way it did before or he says it all? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's, that's, I don't know who he is either. Um, I think that a lot of that is apologetics. I think that things have changed in, in, in certain respects. I have heard even recently, just in the last week, um, we a member of our staff had a conversation with a certain rabbi who runs a very large educational institution and was discussing, well, obviously the, the, this individual did not know he was speaking to a member of our staff. The conversation was anyways. Um, and he was saying how the victim shouldn't go to the police, but you have to be very, very careful not to tell them that. You have to give them some amount of choice. because Wait, they should not go to the police. They shouldn't go to the police. It's better that they not go to the police. We all, but we can't say that out loud. We can't say that out loud. We can't tell victims not to go to the police because ultimately there is a strong chance that they will, either with a therapist or a friend, it will come out anyways. And then we're going to look bad. And it's going to be bad for us that we said, you know, don't go to the police. So you can't tell the victim not to go to the police. That was significant to me because even this was somebody who's sort of like definitely on the wrong side of history. <laughs> it's definitely giving bad advice. But the nature of that bad advice has shifted where he's aware that it's going to come out anyway eventually. There's a strong chance. And it's going to be a tremendous skill Hashem if we're seen as, as having covered it up. That's something, meaning it's 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 at least the victim isn't being told not to report. What exactly the victim's being told, I'm sure it's not. Sean, I'm sorry. I don't understand what he's saying to do, though. Meaning, if it's exactly. going to come out anyway, it do. doesn't make any sense. I don't really understand. If it's going to come out anyway, then why not go to the police? Because it's going to come out? I don't understand what that means. I think he was saying what we understood. What it sounded like he was saying was that you have to give the victim a choice. Even if you don't want him to go to the police, you have to give them a choice. Now, obviously, that choice, for example, I've heard things like, you know, yes, I told the victim they could go to the police. But I told them they should also just be aware that their children will never get accepted to school. Well, what kind of choice is that? I mean, you're basically telling them to choose between going to the police or and having any place whatsoever in the community. Now, that comment was actually made 10 years ago um, before any of this happened. But comments like that, where you're supposedly giving someone a choice, is it's ridiculous. You know, you, you could do this, but just no, I'll shoot you in the head. OK, what kind of choice is that? That's not that is not the choice. 
Um, but the idea here was that, you know, there was a very clear message. We can't tell victims not to go to the police because it will blow up in our face, which is which is something. I, I'm glad there was at least that. What was he saying to do? He wasn't really. It was seemed like he was very much actually trying to pass the buck. He didn't want to give an answer, um, which is still better than giving the answer of don't go to the police. He was saying, go but to why the can't they go to the police if it's going to come out anyway? From their perspective, the person saying this, I know you can't read his mind, but why would he say don't go to the police? What's wrong with going to the police? Let me ask that. According to him, uh, the police are very anti-religion and will do everything they can to take down the religious community. And this is just going to be ammunition for them. It's a very immature and self-centered way of looking at things. Like everyone in the world is just sitting around, you know, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the opportunity to stick it to the Haredi community. We're not that important. Nobody cares that much that they're all sitting around waiting to do nothing. There's no question that there are people in all different kinds of offices, whether it be government and otherwise, who are anti-religious. That exists everywhere. There's all kinds of people that are anti-everything, all different kinds of things. Um, and yes, it it, it is... And I can tell you that as somebody who supports victims in going to the police and represents and fights for those victims, we have dealt with some of that with police officers who make incredibly dismissive and, you know, and just nasty comments to victims, you know, just because you don't understand someone's lifestyle or the choices that they make doesn't give you the right to judge them or take them down. So, yes, that exists. But the idea that the solution then is not to not go to the police, obviously, the solution is make sure you have an advocate, you know 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 your rights know that you can stand up for yourself and request a different detective if someone's being and 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 again this is something that does not happen very often these are situations that are few and far between um but i'm not gonna you know claim that no no this never ever happens okay i want to get back to the idea of going to rabbis and i guess the answer is it's a cultural reality but my question for you is and i assume i know your answer but it's still worth pointing out why should rabbis be involved in the first place in anything regarding abuse? Meaning, when someone has a case to report, Shana, I'll ask you, what's the first place they should go? I assume the answer is not to a rabbi. Should they go to Magain? Should they go to the police? Should they go to a family member? What is the first avenue? What is the first place if somebody has a, a claim to report? What do so they those do? Are, those are two different questions, and yes. I'll answer. So I'll start with the second one first, and then go back to the first one. Um, the the answer to the to the second question is now, obviously the simple answer is, of course, go straight to the police. The reality is that the police can be the, the process of the police. It's not just a matter of going to the police. There's there's a whole process that that entails after that initial meeting report, um, which can be very challenging to navigate. So as much as we will never tell anyone, call McGinn first, then go to the police. If you want to go with someone, if you want to know that you have an advocate, if you want to know, and it is the, in Israel, that is the right of every victim in most uh, Western countries that I know of, victims have a right to bring some kind of advocate, whether it's a lawyer or just a, a victim's advocate, um, with them to the police station, which can be very helpful in sort of navigating the process. So yes, first stop should be the police. But if you want to have a quick stop along the way to get someone who can kind of support you and help you through that process, that's great too. Also, and also I will add to tell you where to go, because it's not always so simple of just go to your local police station. Sometimes it's better to involve social services first. Sometimes in Israel, we have Merkaz Haganah. So if it's a case involving suspected abuse of the child, it's not in the family, and that might be better to go there. So it can be helpful to call Magin or another um, crisis hotline to kind of give you direction just of which part, which which section of law enforcement would, would best uh, be able to help here, um, just to kind of streamline things. Okay. Um, so that's the answer in terms of where do you go first. What is the role of 
rabbis and why should anyone reach out to a rabbi? So I, I, I and we at Magin are very strongly of the opinion that we, we don't want to kick rabbis out of the area of abuse. Um, rabbis for certainly for many, many members of the Haredi community and many, many uh, members of the Kardali community, the Zati community are a very significant part of their lives. The rabbi is involved through all of, whether it's significant parts of the life cycle, as well as just day-to-day life. Um, the rabbi can, is involved with many, many things. So telling someone that when they're going through quite possibly one of the worst periods of their life, they find out their child is abused. No, no, don't talk to your rabbi. I don't think that's helpful either because I think you're depriving them of somebody who perhaps it could be or is a very significant significant part of their kind of communal, whether it be support or guidance. Um, and I don't believe that cutting somebody off from that in this vulnerable time is, is healthy or productive either at all whatsoever. There's a significant role for the rabbi to play in a supportive role. In other words, not telling them whether or not they have permission to go to the police. But someone who has, you know, either was abused or strongly suspects that that their child was abused needs to go to the police. That's the psaac from most rabbinim at this point. Um, and you don't need to, there, there shouldn't be any need to stop and get permission. It's not about permission. Once that has happened, the family is now dealing with this horrific situation. The rub might be able to be supportive, um, whether it's in any kind of, like I said, whether it's advisory or whether it's guidance or whether it's just support. Um, that can be very significant. And we at Magain have had many times where we've helped victims go to Rabbanim. Um, I just, there's one situation that I always mention because it stands out in my mind and it was so significant for this young woman. She had already gone to the police. Um, her her father had asked a had asked the Rub, and the Rub was like, You don't even have to ask. This is you absolutely have to go to the police. Um, and but she afterwards, when the process was already kind of ongoing. She really felt like she was struggling and she also really was, she's she's a 25-year-old um, young Haredi woman. She sort of was starting Shaduchim. It kind of kept coming up. It was making her, she felt, she felt very less than. There was a very strong feeling of like she was kind of a sugbet or a sugimel because of the, her experience. And we brought her to a rug, to a, a very, to a leading rug in Yerushalayim. Um, and it was a whole process of getting her in. And she went in to meet with him and um, and he and he just gave her a bracha. He just sat and listened to her and he gave her a bracha that she should, you know, find healing and that she should get married at the right time to a mentor who will be supportive. And, you know, all the, the usual, it was so meaningful to her. And I just felt like, and I just kept thinking, you know, if it, I, I, there are perhaps other activists out there um, who take a more hard line when it comes to rabbinic involvement in abuse and might have said to her, no, no, don't go to a rabbi at all, because what if he tells you not to? Obviously, we knew that this rabbi is supportive to victims. I wouldn't have just sent her to someone who I had no idea who it was. Um, but this was such a huge moment for her in her life. It was so helpful and supportive and significant for her in that in that moment. And 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 moving forward, like sort of for the next few years in her process, um, that I I don't I wouldn't I would never want to take that away from her. So Yes, there's certainly a role. It is not in giving permission to go to the police. That's that is not the halachic need there. Okay, I'm really glad you said that, Shana, because one of the things I was going to ask you was: Has there ever been a situation? I mean, obviously, ever is a long time, but has there ever been a situation where going to a rabbi, so to speak, instead of going to the police, has been beneficial? And you're answering that 
not instead of going to the police, but in addition to going to the police, yes, it has been beneficial and it is important for certain people. So I'm, yes, it's, I'm pleased to hear that. Very, absolutely. We've also sometimes, I mean, I, we even have victims who, and I'm not talking about if there's a, a chovati block, like where there's a mandated reporting situation where it's a child, talking about where it's an adult um, who is considering reporting and they are reporting somebody who has a lot of power in the Haredi community. We will encourage the victim to, in not 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 before, not to get permission, but just alongside going to police to go to a rav, so that when she gets that backlash from the community, which is inevitably going to happen because the person she's going up against is has some power, that she can say, "I went to a rav." You know, kind of use that as a little a little bit of a guard against the pushback that she's going to get back. So even for the victims who say, I don't care about going to the rub, I don't feel like I need the rub, that's fine. That's great. But it might help you going, you know, down the road to be able to say, I spoke to this person, you know, and then, you know, take it up with him. <laughs> and then the rub actually serves as a little bit of a buffer between them and this tremendous pushback that the community is giving. So that can also sometimes be helpful. And yes, we have done that in the past. Of course, we've also had situations like that where then the community suddenly doesn't care what the rub said, which is very convenient. We could really, you know, yell about needing to go to a rub, except when the rub says to go to the police and then everyone's like, we don't care about that rub. Then all of a sudden that kind of goes goes out the window because ultimately when somebody wants to cover up for an abuser, they're going to find any way to do so, rub or not. Um, but it is something that we will will try to do to, to help the victim through, you know, through that process because these are people that are still living very much within the community. They're not out. They're, they're there. This is their home. Well, let's talk about that just for a moment, that reluctance or very, very strong antagonism towards going to the police or making this public, even if the Rav says, of course, you have to go to the police. Is that coming from a perspective of we don't want anyone to think badly of our community? Is it coming from a perspective of it can't be true because those things don't really happen and therefore this person's a liar? Is it from the perspective of Chilul Hashem? Why is the community so strong at times in pushing people not to say anything publicly? I think it's it's it can be any and all of the above. I'm a big believer in the fact that like usually most of these things are just excuses. Because if it's not this, it's that. If it's not Lashon Har, it's the Lashem. If it's not the Lashem, it's it's you could have done Shuva. If it's not yet, when somebody wants to cover up for somebody who is powerful, and we don't, and, and the reason I think this is because this isn't unique at all whatsoever to the from or the Jewish community. We see this just what goes on in Hollywood, in politics, universities, any place where you have people in positions of power. And then people who are, you know, look up to them or have, you have this dynamic. So the Chil Hashem excuse, the Lashon Hara excuse, these are all just excuses when it comes down to it. Because if there's, because everybody knows halakhically, if there is somebody who is a danger to people in the community, certainly a vulnerable to anyone in the community, but here we're talking about vulnerable people in the community, it's not Lashon Hara because it's absolutely Latoelis. There's no issue of Masira because this person is a rodeo. I mean, all of these things have a halakhic basis is like, and ultimately, it doesn't matter because if you want to push back, you're going to push back. Um, so that's why I think that it's just there. They are often just excuses. I do think that sometimes there's a tremendous lack of understanding around, um, you know, the, the doing chuva is certainly a big excuse that we hear. Um, and something that I that I I actually just had a conversation with a based in, in in New York just last week about this, about a certain case about, you know, whether is there any possibility this person's done chuva? I said, the thing is. Any person who is any of us who are fairly normal and healthy as far as our uh, predilections and whatever, our, our just sort of cognitive makeup, can't really wrap our heads around why someone would sexually abuse 
the anyone, let alone a child. It's not something we can really process. And I usually tell people, I don't recommend you try because it's really, will really mess with your mind. It's not something a normal, healthy person can understand. The closest thing that any of us can relate to that is the the concept of Yetzirah. And I frequently hear people compare, like hear people, Rabbanim, saying like, you know, like, okay, so this one is a Yetzirah to look at women and this one is a Yetzirah to sexually abuse children. Like it's all Yetzirah. It all just sort of falls under this very broad umbrella. That's not the case. So, and and therefore, sorry, take the next step further. They deal with it the same way. Somebody has is having a challenge with Shemir Sainayim, go to the mikvah some extra times, say whatever, I don't know, whatever it is that they tell people to do and go about your life and you do tshuva and you die on your kippur and everything's fine. Um, and so therefore, just do the same thing when it comes to sexually abusing children. Just promise you won't do it again. Dunk the mikvah a few extra times, say tikkun whatever, and uh, and that's it. And that's it. Then you've done tshuva. And we have to explain the shift of, no, this is not the same thing. There is a, there, this is about power and control. There is a highly addictive element to this behavior. It, it's not, this person just, it's not that they didn't realize or like they, they should do a little, little bit better. This is serious, da- seriously dangerous and illegal. They could go to jail and they know it behavior and they're doing it anyways. It's not because it just hasn't occurred to them that they should stop. So now if you give them a new, 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 they're going to be, oh, now I realize I shouldn't be sexually abusing people. I'm going to stop now. That's not how, and maybe he'll stop for a couple months if he can hold himself back. He's going to go back to doing it again. Um, and and that needing to make that shift of, no, this is not the same thing. You can't just treat this like any other Yitzhar of somebody who's struggling with Shemir Sinai or any other Taiva, that it's not the same thing. Um, that not to mention that there is an active victim as well. In Shemir Sinai, it's not, yes. there probably is the victim. Right. Yes. But again, if you're considering it only in the in the scope, like in the from the perspective of the spiritual damage, which even then isn't really the case because there is a victim. This is Ben Adam Lechaver. You know, there Yom Kippur is not Lechaver on on, on Avera Ben Adam Lechaver. So I've had people who said to me, "But he did shuva, really?" Because I know the victims, and none of them have ever received an apology. So there's something like really, and it's like, huh? Needs to apologize? Yes. <laughs> What is, like, how is to Shuva ABCs. Right, like the basics, the real, like, I learned this in kindergarten, guys, so we all need to know this. It's just a, a a perspective shift that is that seems so obvious, but isn't to some people who are really just looking at this as a Yetzirah. So I think for some people it's that, you know, more on, on uh, but from a community side, I think it's just a matter of communities will rally to protect a powerful person in many situations where that dynamic is at play. This isn't unique to us, but we have to deal with it. Sean, I want to comment on something. Uh, perhaps this is unfair of me to mention, but you have a picture of the Chavetz Chaim behind you for those who aren't watching or listening. I think that's actually very telling. And I want to go back to this question of Lashon Hara, which you talked about at the beginning and throughout our conversation. The problem of shutting people up with Lashon Hara, you can't say it's Lashon Hara, and as we know, Lashon Hara is something that's even true, Motsi Shemra is something that's false, Lashon Hara is something which is true, but you still can't say it. What do you think people should do about this? Because it is a very tricky situation, which you indicated, when we're teaching our kids, or even ourselves, that Lashon Hara is a really, really serious Avera, you should not be speaking Lashon Hara, and yet when it comes to abuse, of course you have to report it. How exactly do you thread that needle to allow people to Keep the law of Lashon Hara, and I realize over here it's Latoelet, as you said, is for a benefit. But in teaching people, teaching kids, it's not always so simple to say, you can't speak Lashon Hara, don't you dare speak Lashon Hara. That kid did XYZ, I don't want to hear about it, it's Lashon Hara. I was abused. Oh, why didn't you tell me? You should have told me that. So how would you suggest that people 
managed to walk that line? It's not easy. First of all, I'll start with the picture because <laughs> it is significant and it is telling. That was very much with intent, done with intention. Um, I don't remember when it was a few years ago. I during one one case that we were dealing with where there was this like we got the Lushanhara speeches and I was like, you have clearly not, I you have clearly not learned. Like this is this is not how the halacha works. It's, this isn't how it goes. Um, and I was really like sick and tired of the sort of the Chafetz Chaim being like co-opted for the for the purposes of covering silencing victims. Yes. Right. And I said, you know what, we we need to have a picture of the Chafetz Chaim in our office. Um, and this is probably I think it's been there for like two and a half years now, three years maybe. Like it was really it was like a very significant and 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 we did <laughs> we got a picture of the Chafetz Chaim. We said it's going in our office because. We need a reminder that we're doing what we're doing is not. This is not frivolous gossip. Um, this is very much. This is for the purpose of saving saving lives. That's why we're doing it, and that is the reminder. So yes, we have a picture of the Chavez Chaim on our wall in my gain office, and it will stay there for many years, I am sure. In terms of how listen, it, it, how do we explain this to children? It's tricky. A lot of things are are tricky to explain to children because children are not great at understanding nuance. <laughs> it's something that comes with maturity. Um, I can tell you that, you know, in our house, what I have a rule with my children that I told them that there is no such thing as Lashonara when it comes to your parents. When you're little and you need your parents, it's your parents' job to figure out what is Lashonara and not. You're not old enough to, to be able to, to fully understand that yet. So anything you feel you should tell your parents, tell your parents. That's I'm not saying tell your friends, I'm not saying tell everyone, but tell your parents or tell a safe adult that I, I that's a rule that we have. Um, aside from that, from a very young age, I always try to explain to my kids the difference between is this behavior hurting anyone or making anyone uncomfortable? If someone's doing something which is like, it, there, no one is actually being damaged at all. You know, someone ate an extra cookie, somebody, you know, was uh, picking their nose in class, somebody, their friend, somebody, that's not, no one's getting hurt from that activity or that behavior. Um, and it's not, and I, I ha, you have to add to get getting hurt because molestation does not always hurt. Children do not always identify sexual abuse as being a hurtful behavior because it doesn't always hurt physically. It often does not, in fact. So that's why we always have to add the uncomfortable as well. Or is it making someone uncomfortable, like feel uncomfortable? If it is, if someone's doing something that's really making you feel uncomfortable, tell us. Tell us. That's the that's the difference. And then we have to, and as they get older, they get it just like every other tricky conversation. They get older, with maturity comes that nuance, and they get it. That seems to make a lot of sense. Moving on to something else which we haven't addressed, an aspect of the case that sort of I passed over before. The fact that Chaim Walder had access to people. He wasn't just an author. He was, and I'm using this word carefully because I don't know, he was a therapist or was he acting as a therapist? Was he licensed as a therapist? He was not licensed. He was acting as a therapist. Okay, and that's how he got access to some of the people whom he abused, correct? Yes. Is that fact that he's an unlicensed therapist, is that part of the problem? Meaning the fact that in certain communities we send people to people who are not licensed, is that a problem in itself or does it happen equally among licensed therapists? It does not happen equally. Um, I'm not going to say that, first of all, yes, that is, it is a serious problem because even if you, and it's something that we deal with at McGinn constantly, because even if you put aside the sexual abuse for a minute, there are other incredibly damaging and inappropriate behaviors at things that go on with unlicensed therapists, just in terms of the tactics and the way that they work, or the, the lack of training, lack of expertise, lack of knowledge, 
is really horrifying. <laughs> I mean, there there have been some really awful, awful, so many awful, awful stories that we have have received um, with uh, regard to un, the unlicensed therapists that that people see in in uh, in communities. Uh, certainly, sexual abuse is one of those issues. But I'm not going to claim that sexual abuse doesn't happen among licensed mental health professionals as well. It's it's it happens. There's actually been recent a couple recent cases that have come out in the news in Israel. Um, a couple licensed one, I think, was a psychiatrist, one was a psychologist, if I'm remembering correctly, who had sexually abused um, some of their patients. So yes, that can happen, and it's important to keep your finger on the pulse when you send your kids to any therapist. I'm not going to claim, but there, but you can't really compare. Because when somebody is licensed and they are then and they're following the regulations of their profession, which means they're getting supervision, which means they're getting it's a lot harder, not impossible, but harder to hide that kind of behavior. When somebody literally answers to no one and is working in a profession that by definition puts them right in the heart of people's most vulnerable lives, aspects of their lives, et cetera. Um, you, you really have a recipe for disaster. And we have, I mean, I can't even tell you how many cases like that we have. We actually just recently, last night, um, again, we uh, released a video that was created by a number of uh, Haredi um, female uh, actresses and producers. And they worked on this really just, it was a tremendous tremendous, tremendous effort went into this video. And one of the things it basically it's, it's a sort of a scene of sort of like a support group and you can watch it. If we finish, there's a number of, of women who are describing in somewhat vague terms, because this is for the very mainstream Haredi community, um, their experience of abuse, but it's more describing the grooming process and their feelings of confusion and discomfort. And it's love to, you know, sort of like, well, not really sure what to do. Um, that go on in these scenarios. And one of the things that I said to them when we were working on the script was there needs to be a therapist. We need one scenario of a woman who's being abused by her therapist because we get so many reports like this within the community that there was no way to put out something like this without addressing that. Um, the boundary crossing and the fact that people are not, and this is this is one major issue with the fact that because these people don't have internet access. These many, many people using these these therapists either don't have internet access or have limited internet access. They're not googling. They're they're not googling to find out information. Like there are many people, even in in the more open Haredi communities and the Zeti communities, where you Google to check is is this normal? Is this something you know before you go to a doctor or a therapist? Or and because they're not doing that, and because it's 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 therapy is still something that's fairly taboo. They're not talking about it with a lot of people, and so they don't know that it's not normal. It's not normal for my therapist to offer me a bunch of free sessions. It's not normal for my therapist to call me late at night regularly to check on me. It's not normal for my therapist to share personal details about themselves or their marriage or their intimate lives in their marriage. It's not normal for my therapist to touch me. They do not realize that this isn't normal. They're told by the therapist that this is normal, and that's the authority figure there. So they're trusting them. Um, and it, like I said, recipe for disaster. Yeah, I'm actually preparing another episode on the intersection or lack thereof of rabbinic counseling and proper therapy. And I think in that same way, you talk about somebody who is unlicensed and therefore there's no one above him to check to make sure that he or she is doing proper therapy. The same 
issue, of course, can come up with rabbinic counseling. We talk about going to rabbis and a rabbi who is not trained in a certain area. I'm not even only talking about abuse, but simply not having the ability or the tools to handle certain situations. A person can come with a very serious issue of mental health and the rabbi treats it as regular pastoral counseling, which he may also not be trained in. And I agree with you. It can be a tremendous recipe for disaster. And I'm sure the same thing is true when it comes to abuse by rabbis as well. I can say I, I have obviously a lot of conversations with many, many rabbis from all across the Haredi world in my work. And the greatest, it's not even respect, it's more than respect. It's it's real, like real deep respect that I have for Rabbanim um, who will say, this is my, this is what I can answer. This you need to ask a professional about, like a, a professional in this area. I'm a professional in this area. Not, I remember going to Myra once and speaking to him about something. And at some point he went, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. And I have never respected him more of just the ability for any person to be able to say, this is not mine. This isn't my, I didn't train for 10 years in this. I've trained for 20 years in something else. And, and, and like I said before, there's a tremendous role for a money to have, but absolutely. If you start stepping into the, you know, doctor, psychologist areas, then we're just making a mess. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems in general in the Jewish world and outside of the Jewish world is this idea that people begin to establish themselves as infallible experts in everything just because they're very good in one particular area. And once people start believing that, it's it can be terrible. I want to mention the death of Yehuda Meshi Zahav. He had, as I, we mentioned earlier, he attempted suicide, died uh, the end of June, I believe. And I looked up online just now before we talk, Shana, in Bechadre Haredim, which is one of the largest online Haredi news sources, they had an obituary. They called him Zichron Odiracha, of blessed memory. And one of the last lines of the obituary reads as follows. More than a year ago, after a media storm, he left the organization Zaka that he founded. And this morning, as was stated, he died after a year in a coma. The only thing that's surprising about this is the degree that it's not surprising. Obviously, they're saying a media storm about Meshi Zahav. Now, the case of Meshi Zahav, at least from what I hear, might have been even more obvious to the people involved than Chaim Walder. This is somebody who had received the Israel Prize, was celebrated in all sectors of Israeli society, from non-religious to the Haredim, except for perhaps the most extreme Haredim, whom he left. And when it was found that he was guilty of abuse, as I recall it, you might tell me that I'm wrong, as I recall it, everyone said, oh, we all knew that. It was something which was this real open secret, apparently. I don't mean everybody, but apparently a lot of people knew what was really going on when he finally was caught and was whatever, at that point when he attempted suicide. First of all, please let me know if I'm right, that this was some sort of open secret that once the information came out about Meshi Zahav, a lot of people were not surprised to hear it. And second of all, why would a media outlet like Bechadre Haredim not mention what happened? Or, let's even put it differently, if they can't mention what happened, then don't write an obituary at all. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. So on some level, it's almost like, okay, if you can't talk about it, then don't write anything. If you can't talk about it, talk about it. But why write an obituary? Call it a media storm that everyone knows was true. I'm just very confused about their perspective. So what do you think? So first of all, to, to, to just the question about the nature of the allegations, I mean, Meshizov case, we were very, very involved with um, and were in touch with and supported many of the victims, both both in the investigation level leading up to the article and then afterwards with the police. And um, and I can tell you that, yes, he, it was, 
on the one hand, it was widely known um, in the sense that, I mean, we even found at one point a Pashkaville that had been put up in the like Meisharim community back in the 80s that was warning people that he was with like this old, old, old picture of him, like a 50 year old picture of him warning people that he was dangerous to be around children. This was not a secret in the most insular Haredi community. On the other hand, I can tell you that as the organization who that worked on this investigation to get the victims to come forward and to, it was incredibly difficult. The victims were absolutely terrified. So there was still, it was somehow this known secret. On the other hand, it was absolutely impossible to get it to actually come out. So, um, so it's amazing that kind of dichotomy that both of those things were going on at the same time. He was... I think because he got away with it for so many years and was so emboldened, he was extremely arrogant about the way that he abused people. Also, we had, I can, I can share one piece of a story that with one of the victims that we supported that when he had abused her, um, this had happened at a, at a hotel and he had a long story, how this all came about. But he drove up to the hotel in his Zaka uniform, in the Zaka van, parked it right on the curb, came out, said hello to everyone, and brought this woman upstairs. Like in full view, there was no in full view of everyone. In full view of everyone. Like it was like it was just a complete given that no one was going to ask like think twice about the fact that this man was bringing this young woman into a hotel when they're like a, some non-related what is happening there that this completely ignored. Like it, this just was part of the everyday. So yes, it is unbelievable what can go on in full view and what people can somehow know and not know at the same time. And then how difficult it can be to take a secret from being an open secret to being an open fact is 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 unbelievable and is probably a whole, you know, a whole uh, conversation in itself. Um, as far as the Haredi media, I don't have a tremendous amount of respect for the Haredi media. I have a lot of respect for much of the Haredi leadership. Um, I do not for the media. And I, I think the media is a the media is a reflection. The creative media likes to pretend that they are, it's all about Das Torah and it's all about, you know, they're gonna do things in accordance with what the rabbis want. It's not about the rabbis, it's about the money. All about the money. I that's I don't I don't know if I'm like, you know, anyone's horrified by this or <laughs> I don't know if I'm shocking anyone, <laughs> but it's not really it, it's 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 advertising. It's about advertising. It's about where are they going to lose their advertisers? It's about, you know, are they going to lose their followers? It all really comes down to the finances of the operation. So I, I don't think I think that they, they I know they're allowed to write what they're allowed to write. They don't write what they don't want to write. Why did they write that? Probably because. Yeah. Why not just leave it alone? Ignore it. Because they have to say something, and then maybe people will go and Google it, because if it's all over the internet, so people will find it themselves. But they can't put it, so it's a ridiculous... I, I can tell you that we, following the... Uh, it was following the Walder case. Um, we were... I was I, I was so furious with the lack of any sort of real coverage um, and, and, the, and the ridiculous coverage that there was. This, like what you're describing, this incredibly vague, although what you're describing is sort of the best case scenario. At least they sort of referenced it and they didn't say anything wonderful about him. But there were others that- They did give him the Zal designation though, so that's not yeah, exactly there, good. there's that, right. Um, but I, I'm so upset that I said, okay, if they're not going to put in anything about abuse or anything in support of abuse victims, then we're going we're gonna to do it for them. And we found a bunch of donors who sponsored uh, paid ads for Magin with all of these like slogans about supporting victims. And, um, and I can tell you that the amount of back and forth and the 
debates that we had to go through to get the slogans approved and what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say. And obviously, I mean, we're an organization that caters to the Haredi population. We weren't going to say anything outrageous to begin with. It's not, I mean, we're very sensitive, but it was like pulling teeth. Very, very difficult. And it's it's money, it's advertisers, it's money, it's subscribers, it's, you know, all the things like every other media outlet. Right. Okay, Shana, we're almost out of time, but let me ask a final question. Maybe you will end on, I hope, a more positive note. I guess it depends on on how you answer this question. Has the Walter case over the past 11 months, has it provided windows for parents, perhaps, to have some difficult conversations that before they might not have ever had? Because maybe they're taking kids speak, his books, off their shelves. Maybe uh, the kids heard about this and had to talk about it on some level. Has it provided an opening for more people than maybe would have happened in the past to talk about these things so that children will be more willing to discuss them should anything happen to them? Yes. Yes. I think the short answer is yes. There's certainly been, I think that this got, this, this, this obviously got shoved up in people's faces in a way that could not be ignored. Um, and obviously nobody wants a case, you know, to break in this way and nobody wants that communal devastation. But when something terrible is going on, it need, it needs to be exposed. It needs to be out there because we cannot start to heal and learn until it's out there. So covering things up really does not, it, it doesn't help anybody. Um, and uh, and again, obviously it's, it's terrible the, that, that such a thing, you know, had to happen. And it's, and it's, and, and I, and I do make space for the fact that there is communal trauma when something like this happens, but ultimately the victim's trauma has to come first. That is our first priority. That's has to be at the forefront of our minds. Um, we need to protect our community. We need to protect our children. Um, and I think that this, this case breaking did kind of force the issue for people who maybe hadn't thought about it until now or had tried to kind of ignore it um, to realize that they have to, I, I'll share a story. Um, a number, a few months ago, um, there was somebody who called us, and I don't remember why. It was a, a man from the Nabrock. He called, he was very upset because, I, I don't remember why he was upset. He was upset about somebody had been talking about something, and he he was calling because he didn't understand why do we have to talk about this. Like, he understands fine if there are victims, we should help them. Why do we have to talk about it? And I said, there's we talked about that. I explained, you know, why it's important to talk about why. And then he said that he, um, he doesn't understand. It's very hard for him to believe when these cases come out after so many years, because if it was really happening, obviously the children would tell their parents. And I said, why would the children tell their parents? Why would they think that they can? And he said, well, every child knows that they could talk to their parents about something like this. I said, have you ever, I said, you have children? He said, yes, Baruch Hashem, yes, five. I said, have you ever talked to them about abuse or anything related to abuse or anything? Have you brought up the topic at all? to give them the message that they could speak to you. And he, there was just silence. And he said, no. And I said, so why do you think that your children would talk to you if something like this was happening to them? And he said, I have to talk to them. And that was how he ended the call. And I, it's not the only phone call that we've had like that. And I think that that's, that is a message that people need to understand. You cannot assume that anyone's going to, that your child's going to tell you something or that anything is a given unless you bring it up. There's no no safety in secrets. It has to be out there. That doesn't mean it has to be out there everywhere. Your child, not every, you know, I think that scares people also. The idea that they talk about their abuse, it's going to be plastered everywhere. No, but you need to speak to the safe people and it needs to be dealt with. Okay. Well, Shauna Aronson, I really appreciate your talking to me again. I always learn a lot when talking to you. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.